for this time now that we open your word, hearing it proclaimed, and thereby petitioning you, Holy Father, that in this hour your word would run unencumbered, unhindered, and be glorified in our very midst, in our very hearts. We trust you, Father, for the unction of the blessed Spirit to clothe both the one who delivers your word and all who hear, that it will be effectual, that it will be to the glory and the honor of Christ Jesus our Lord, that it will be to the salvation of those yet to be converted to Christ, and that it will be to the sanctification of all your saints that are gathered here today. For Jesus' sake and in his name we pray. Amen. I'll invite you to take God's word and let's turn to John chapter 1. The gospel according to John chapter 1. As we consider this morning what I have entitled the greatest tragedy. The greatest tragedy. John chapter 1, we're going to begin reading at verse 9, and we will read through verse 13, verses 9 through 13 of John chapter 1. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet The world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. May God bless the reading of his holy word and the teaching that now follows. In Paul's letter to the church at Rome, he labors in the first half of his epistle to unpack the awful plight of man as a sinner under the wrath of God. When he comes to what we might call the climax of his exposition, he sums it up in chapter 3 and verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. There are no exceptions. The world then, the world now, this is the world we live in, a world under sin. And by declaring that we're all under sin, Paul is not saying that sin is some matter barely touching our lives. No. 
he's stressing the hard fact that everyone, without exception, is under the awful weight of sin and carry in themselves the burden of its guilt, corruption, and rebellion against God. Moreover, the force of what Paul is further maintaining is that because of our sin, each one of us, under the verdict of God's law, are exposed to God's judgment. Again, there are no exceptions. Therefore, wherever the gospel of Jesus Christ is taken in any part of this world, the culture, the people group, which the gospel encounters are a people under sin. Now, to buttress his claim and defend this grim assessment of man's sinful condition, Paul moves from this blanket statement in Romans 3 and verse 9 to then give a litany of carefully chosen quotations from the Old Testament scriptures which set forth a spiritual profile of man under sin. Out of the 14 biblical descriptions Paul cites in Romans chapter 3 and verse 11, God's word reveals something quite remarkable about the sinfulness of man. It states, no one seeks for God. No one seeks for God. This means that man in his natural sinful condition does not, will not, and cannot seek for God. In the sinful nature of every sinner, there is no move toward God. There is not a single affection for God. Sinners, as sinners, seek only that which their nature wants, which is more sin. Or we could say, sinners by nature only want a life their nature craves, which is a life lived for self, not Christ. Opening this truth up further, R.C. Sproul made this observation. We see people searching for the things that we know can be found only in Christ, but we make the gratuitous assumption that because they are seeking the benefits of God, they must therefore be seeking God. That is the very dilemma of fallen creatures. We want the things that only God can give us, but we do not want Him. We want peace, but not the Prince of Peace. We want purpose, but not the sovereign purposes decreed by God. We want meaning found in ourselves, but not in His rule over us. We see desperate people, and we assume they are seeking for God, but they are not seeking for God. I know that because God says so, no one seeks after God. Well, with this in mind, 
we return this morning to our new series in the Gospel of John, where four weeks ago we started a new section in John's prologue. This section covers verses 9 through 13 and highlights the first advent of Christ from the standpoint of why he came into the world. Still seeking to prove the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and thereby the only Savior for sinful man, John unpacks what we could call his third case builder to serve this purpose. In verses 9 through 13, the driving principal truth is that Jesus Christ came into the world for the single purpose of saving sinners. Thus, Christ is not only the eternal Son of God, not only has God sent a witness to testify of Christ concerning this reality, all of which is covered in verses 1 through 8, but now John presses upon us that Jesus Christ came into the world for the single purpose of saving sinners. Now, in stating this purpose of Christ in verses 9 through 13, we have divided it up under three main headings. First, there is the revelation of Christ coming into the world. Second, there is the rejection of Christ coming into the world. And third, there is the reception of Christ coming into the world. Four weeks ago, we considered the first of these three points, the revelation of Christ coming into the world. In verse 9, John declares, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. The light John is referring to here is, of course, Christ himself. But what's significant is the way John describes Christ as the light. He calls Jesus the true light. The true light. So Jesus Christ is not simply the light, but he's the undisputed, bona fide light. And we understood this in four different ways. First, he is undeceiving light in opposition to all the false lights that have come into the world. Second, he is real light as opposed to the ceremonial types and shadows of the old covenant. Third, he is original light in opposition to all light that is borrowed, communicated, or participated from another. And lastly, he is incomparable light in opposition to all that is ordinary and common. Following this description, though, as to what kind of light Jesus Christ is, we also raise the question as to what kind of light does Christ give to every man? John says that the true light gives light to everyone. So what kind of light does Christ give to everyone? Taking in the full context, context of John chapter 1, verses 1-18, through 18, Combined with the rest of his gospel account, this is what we understood in answer to this question. The light which Christ gives to every man is illuminating every man 
who hears the gospel with a limited understanding concerning spiritual matters. In other words, the light that is given is Christ himself who is made manifest by the preaching of the gospel. But a question must be raised at this point which will segue into our study today. How have people responded to this light which Christ has given? Or we could say, when the gospel is preached and people are exposed to the truth for why Christ came, how do they respond? How do they respond? The answer to this question is the subject of verses 10 through 13 here in John chapter 1. In this passage, we have what I would stipulate as the general and exceptional response to our Lord Jesus Christ. For our study this morning, we're going to concentrate on the general response of the world toward Jesus Christ. This is the subject of John chapter 1 verses 10 and 11. The reason I classify this as the the general response is because... This is how the vast majority of the world reacts to Christ when they hear of him in the gospel. When the world beholds the glory of Christ through his saving gospel, the overall response is sheer rejection. The saving message and mission of Christ is both discarded and denied by a world under sin. And it is this rejection of Christ which John chapter 1 verses 10 and 11 underscores from both the perspective of Jews and Gentiles. In verse 10 we see the Gentiles rejecting Christ and in verse 11 we see the Jews Rejecting Christ. Let's consider each of these perspectives in turn. First, we notice the Gentiles rejecting Christ. Reading verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. The historic context from which the Apostle John is writing is clearly looking back during the incarnation of Christ. These words are describing the the 33 years Jesus spent in this world at his first advent and what was the widespread response of the world toward him, that is, how Gentiles responded to Christ instead of Jews. Verse 11 will give attention to the Jews. Well, there are three things on the surface we should notice John is telling us from this verse. First of all, Jesus Christ was in the world. The verb was speaks to the fact that Christ did not pay a fleeting visit, but was here and present in a real time and space and period of real history. Second of all, the world owes its very existence to Christ himself. The world, we're told here, was made through him. 
John is reemphasizing what is already stated back in verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The fact, the fact that John reiterates this is setting us up for what he declares in the final clause of verse 10. Look at it. Yet the world did not know him. Christ was actually present in the world. This world which he made and the people in this world who are part of his creation did not know him. Do you sense the weightiness of how unbelievable this is? There's the incarnate Son of God through whom all things were created walking in the very midst of this world of men he breathed life into and yet they did not know him. Hence the Gentiles' rejection of Christ. But what does John mean by saying here, the world did not know him? What does that mean? Well, the key word for our understanding is obviously the verb translated know. The basic meaning of this word is to recognize. So the knowledge here is not merely intellectual, but relational. And it has to do with having a right relation with someone, a relationship which you have actually sought. Furthermore, the grammar construction John employs for this verb tells us that he's referring to one point in time, namely, as already stated, the incarnation. And the fact that the world did not know Christ during his incarnation bespeaks a rejection that is willful in the sense that the Gentiles who were in the presence of Christ did not even bother. They did not even bother to know who he really was in their midst. Here, the world 2,000 years ago, the world had the greatest opportunity to enter into a right relationship with God and missed it. And how and why did they miss it? Well, the answer is simple but tragic. They just didn't care. They just didn't care. They didn't recognize Christ because they didn't care to recognize Christ. And this is where we see the rejection of Christ from the perspective of the Gentiles. Listen, it is with indifference rooted in idolatry. It is with indifference rooted in idolatry. This is how the Gentiles rejected Christ during his incarnation and how they do so still today. Indifference rooted in idolatry. In other words, for the irreligious pagan of this world, their basic response to the gospel is an apathetic disengaged response which says to each his own 
This is not for me. I have my life to live the way I want to live it than to be bothered with some foolish religion about a crucified Savior. Who cares? But this indifference toward Christ, as I said, is rooted in idolatry. While the indifferent pagan may shrug the gospel off as something not for him, yet what's driving that apathy is a love for self because it's a worship of self. In fact, this is the very thing which the Apostle Paul elaborates in Romans chapter 1, 18-32 concerning the Gentiles in their relation to God. Let me just rehearse this for you. What Paul tells us, teaches us, reveals to us in Romans chapter 1 concerning the Gentiles that they suppress the truth which they know about God due to what they see God has made via creation. And by this suppression, they refuse to honor God and thank Him as He deserves, but rather they exchange the glory and truth about God for a lie wherein they worship and serve themselves instead of the Lord God who alone is to be worshipped. Every day, every day, every day in this world, there are millions and millions of people that fit that description. Every day. Suppressing the truth that they know about God because of what they observe clearly, evidently, are the things he has made, which is why Paul says in Romans 1, they are without excuse. And yet in that suppression of the truth, what do they do? They exchange, Paul says, they exchange the truth of God for a lie. And they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Every day. The world is full of such people. This is the blunt, overt idolatry of the world towards Christ through whom they owe their very existence. They care nothing. They care nothing about having a right relation to Christ and all that means in the matter of His redeeming grace. Why? Because the driving aim of their life is what they can get and gain all for themselves in the here and now. That's where millions and millions of people are right at this very moment. 
And yes, even in Alabama. We're not immune. We're not the exception. Such is the way in which your run-of-the-mill Gentile says no to Jesus Christ. Such is the Gentiles' rejection of Christ. Christ was in the world. The world was made through him. Yet the world did not even recognize him. Wow. But the Gentiles were not the only ones who rejected Christ our Lord during his incarnation. Now, there was another group who rejected Christ that John turns our attention to in verse 11. Let's consider now the Jews, the Jews rejecting Christ. Reading verse 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. These words are frankly more shocking than what John wrote in verse 10. As New Testament scholar Leon Morris noted, when Christ came to this world, he did not come as an alien. He came home. Moreover, he came to Israel. Had he come to some other nation, it would have been bad enough. But Israel was distinctly God's own people. Christ did not go where he could not have expected to be known. He came home where the people ought to have known him. You see... When John says that Jesus came to his own, the terminology used here in the original language carries the idea of one's own property or one's own home. What's more, by qualifying this as his own people, John is clearly making direct reference to the Jews as a nation. And with the Jewish nation... As we well know, God gave covenants of promise which all pointed to the coming of God's eternal Son made flesh, Jesus, the Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah. So for centuries, the Jews had waited with great anticipation for the Messiah and Savior, God's promised Redeemer, to come. But when Christ finally came to his own people, John tells us, they did not receive him. This word translated receive is the Greek verb paralambano, which means to take to one's side or a more common meaning, to welcome, to welcome. Christ came home, but he was not welcomed home. No, rather like their ancestors, the generation, now listen closely, the generation of Jews whom Jesus came to stiffened their necks and rejected him despite the clear, undisputable testimony of his life 
ministry, message, and miracle working power combined with his death, which all gave proof to every promise the Old Testament scriptures witness concerning the Messiah. But for the Jewish nation, the Jewish nation, the Messiah they were seeking was not God's Messiah. They were not looking for the true Christ, the promised Redeemer, who Isaiah said would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, by whose wounds we are healed. That's not where the Jews were fixing their hope. When God's Son came to Israel, the only Messiah they were expecting, the only Savior they were anticipating, was a political warrior. Someone who would deliver them from Rome's oppression and give them back their kingdom. The Jews were not thinking that their real problem was not Rome, but their sin. In fact, their self-perception was quite arrogant. They sincerely believed that they were secure in God's favor. Why? Because they were the physical descendants of Abraham. Which is why John the Baptist decried such assurance in Israel when he said to their leaders in Matthew 3, 9, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. What's more, they counted exclusively on their ethnicity as Jews, as giving them a free pass with God. They furthermore boasted in their heritage as the only nation who received God's laws, His divine oracles. Yes, they prided themselves on these things, but completely missed the point of what God was doing. The only salvation Israel believed they needed when Christ came was political, not spiritual. And thus their rejection was not with indifference like the world. No, my friend, their rejection was fiercely antagonistic. Let us not forget that instead of repenting of their sin and turning to Jesus Christ as their only true Messiah... Their only true Messiah, Redeemer, the Jews screamed, crucify him, crucify him. They called for his blood, not to cleanse their sins, but to get rid of him. And this fact alone was so scandalous and unconscionable. That the apostolic preaching of Christ's apostles never let the Jews of that generation forget it. The apostles never let the Jews forget it. We see this in the Apostle Peter's first sermon on the day of Pentecost recorded in Acts chapter 2. Who was his audience? Jews. Not Gentiles, Jews. Peter said to those Jews in Jerusalem, Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord in Christ, this Jesus, 
whom you crucified. The Jews' rejection of Christ was antagonism rooted in arrogance. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But why this rejection of Christ? Why? Why is it that we see the indifference of Gentiles, the antagonism of Jews, in their response towards God's only Son, Jesus Christ the Lord? Why? The answer to this question takes us right back where we started this study. It's in what Paul the Apostle wrote in Romans 3 and verse 9, that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Under the weight, the dominion, the rule, and the rebellion of sin against God. And as sinners under sin, the scripture tells us, as we saw, there's none who seeks for God. That's Jews. That's Gentiles. Together. There's none who seeks for God. But here's my question. Here's my question, very critical question. Is there any hope for a world not seeking after God? Is there any hope for a world not seeking after God? Answer, oh yes. (laughs) Yes, yes. For while Jews and Gentiles reject Christ, there are many not left to their own devices whom God calls, whom God saves in Christ, both Jews and Gentiles. Concerning this fact and blessed hope, the word of God tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 through 29, which I would encourage you right now to turn to. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 through 29, because it is with this passage that I close today's study. Remembering the question, is there any hope for a world not seeking after God? Listen to the answer of God's word to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 through 29. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is 
foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Is there hope? Yes. Yes. For Jews, for Gentiles, our hope is in God who calls, in God who is chosen to redeem, to rescue, to bring to himself sinners who otherwise would remain in the foolishness and stubbornness of their sin. Because to Jesus Christ, Jews are a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles, he's foolishness. But because of the work of God's grace, because of what God does, to the Jews, Christ does not appear a stumbling block. But he appears strong, all-powerful. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior, the Redeemer. To Gentiles, Jesus Christ is not foolish, but he is ultimate wisdom. There is absolute hope for a world that does not seek after God. And the hope is nowhere found in the world. The hope is found in God through Christ alone. And that is the joy and that is the encouragement of what God's word in the gospel of Jesus Christ gives to every man and woman, young and old, in all the world. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we have been reminded soberly and joyfully here at the end, we are what we are, Lord, only by your grace, only because of your calling us to yourself. All the glory goes to you. And therefore, rightly, we do not make our boast in ourselves, but, Father, we make all of our boast in you through Christ our Lord and by the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Holy Father, that though we were once under sin, like all the world is under sin, you chose to have mercy. You chose independent of anything that we could do and of all that we were as sinners. You chose to save us in your son and because of what he was sent to do to save his people from their sins. 
We thank you, Holy Father, for reminding us of these things today. We thank you for truly sobering us to the awful fact and reality of man's rejection of Christ and what is at the heart and basis of that. But yet, Lord, we do not look at such rejection with haughtiness on our part. We do not look down our noses as if somehow we're better and we're different and we're an exception to this because as your word has told us this morning, this fact was true of us all. We were all under sin. But in Jesus Christ, we have been delivered. We have been set free. We have been made new creatures in him. For these things, Holy Father, we give you thanks this day. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.